the text I'm focusing on tonight is actually verses 31 and 32 of Romans 8, but I'm going to put it in its context, and I will read, I'm going to read 31 and 32, but we'll come back and we'll go through the whole chapter. Hear God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that indeed you would illumine our hearts, that we might be encouraged to understand your character and what you have done and how you do love us. So we ask, Lord, for your guidance and your grace in Christ's name. Amen. I was told that this morning I gave a stern sermon. So this evening, one I hope that will also then give you comfort and encouragement. If God is for us is the question, and, and the background for this message is another devotional I heard that Sinclair Ferguson do, and I've just taken a couple of thoughts from that and expanded it some. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Why this question at this point in this letter, too? In fact, it's almost as if he's put a therefore here. He says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, he's drawing from everything he said previously, but maybe most recently, what we would term chapter 8. What shows us God's action for us? I want to go back and let's just look at a few things here as we will just work quickly through chapter 8 to see some of these things that God has done so that as we come to verse 31, you really do understand what should we say to these things if God is for us because you'll be able to say it with a conviction. He says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. One of the things we see is that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. That's what the law requires for those who sin. And you and I are set free from that in Christ Jesus. That's why there's no condemnation. Verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Another thing that he's done, he sent his son to condemn our sin in his son's flesh. This is what he has done for us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You get a sense of what Paul is building here in, 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 in the context of what God has done. He has set a foundation for us that secures us 
and secures us in his peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh can not please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's the next thing we see that he's done. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. He gives us life by his Holy Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Another thing that God has done in us being led by the Spirit of God, we are our lives actually prove that we are sons of God. Those are the ones that he leads. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's given us this, the spirit works on us so that we actually have a sense that we are adopted by God, that we are brought into his family. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Just to pause here for a moment. That really gives a good reason why we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't quench the Holy Spirit. You know, in Ephesians 5, where it, it says not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed, he's talking about having those things go through your mind and become actions that defile the people around you, that hurt the people around you. This is why we, we, sh we should not do it, because that Holy Spirit, as he works in us, gives us the testimony that we're God's children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That goes right along with what we looked at this morning, that suffering being identified with Christ. And as you are identified with Christ, you will suffer from that identity with Christ. Nobody messes with you, it, particularly among the heathens, the pagans. It may be that they don't see Christ in you. They don't hear of Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Boy, that'd be an interesting sermon right there, those two, three verses. Ask Brother Frontier to preach on that for you. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pangs, the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, here's one more thing in, in giving us assurance that we have the first fruits of the Spirit in us. And what are those? That's being conformed to Christ. That's seeing some of the the fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in us that then becomes a blessing to those around us. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Here's another thing that God does for us. For we do not know what to pray for, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I wonder if sometimes our best prayers, privately, aren't those where we fail in words and just throw ourselves upon his mercy, waiting upon him. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, here's another thing that gives us assurance, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What we see God doing here, or well, what the Apostle Paul is spelling out, but what the Holy Spirit is, is doing is arguing in logic from the greater to the lesser. If God has done these things for us, how much more so will he not give us all things? And what Paul is suggesting in this is that we need this kind of logic for our lives as we look at the circumstances that we come into, as we sometimes may feel like we are being abandoned or we're, we're in over our heads, we need to remember that if God has done all of these things for us, how much more so will he then give us what we need? You know, we can go back to really the longest standing promise in Scripture. God has done 
the biggest thing, the most difficult thing, the most difficult promise that he has given us, he has done. Do you know what that promise is? It's in Genesis 3, where the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That is the most difficult thing that God, the divinity, would take on human flesh and suffer the wrath that our sins deserve. He sent his son for us. But how do I know that God is for me? How do I know that I'm, I'm the beneficiary of these promises? You know, we, we will tend to think at times, well, obviously God is for us. Look how well things are going. God is really blessing our church. God is really blessing my family. We are prospering. But how about when cancer or stroke or divorce or death occur? Do we then think, oh, God is for me? God is upholding me. He is with me. See, there's a problem when we start thinking that we can know God is for us when things are going good. Because what do we do then when our lives start to crumble, when things start to fall apart? How do we answer that? We come back to this fact that God has kept his promises to us. And as we then look at what he has done for us in Scripture, then we know that he has he is working all things for good. We can have an absolute certainty that he is for us. Now, here's the logic that Paul uses as you look at this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And put that into the context. This isn't a verse you can pull out and say, okay, I need a million dollars in the bank. Uh, I need a new girlfriend or whatever you want to think of. The context is all of these things that he has already done for us. These things that he's laid out here as, as we were reading through this, all of this, these things in giving us life, in giving us a place, in declaring us his precious possession. All of these things come to pass. In fact, let's look at these, these verses that some people really struggle over. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He'll give that to you. in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. How do you know that? Because he didn't spare his own son for you or I. And let's put it back into an earlier context, Romans 5. Why we were still enemies, God sent his son to die for us. 
you know, one way we could describe God as if we were talking to somebody else, in a very personal way, God is the Father who gave his Son up to death to save us. He gave his Son up to judicial punishment to deliver us from that punishment for our sin and to make us his own precious possession. We see pictures of this as you look back in Scripture. You remember with Abraham and Isaac. They're going up. Isaac's carrying the wood. And I'll paraphrase. Don't don't ding me if I'm not exactly accurate. But basically, his son says, Dad, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the lamb? God will provide. And God did provide. Look at the arguments that follow after he says this. We again see arguments basically working from the greater to the lesser. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's, he's making this argument that because the judge has justified us, there's nobody that can bring a charge. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Nobody can condemn us because the one who died for us intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists these things. Again, and, and what you see here is this love of Christ that is greater than all anything on this earth shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now, he's not saying that these things might not happen to us. But you know, that really isn't that big of a concern if we see that our lives are not limited to just what we experience here and now. We tend to live in the here and now, and that's good on a, on a number of planes. But we are also living in that eternal life which he has given us in Christ. And we have the bonus of knowing that that eternal life is going to be spent before the presence of God, not under condemnation, but in glory in exaltation, in reveling, in peace. We may go through persecution and famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. We may go through those things, but they don't separate us from God. He holds us through those things. And it's tough because what you and I know is what we experience, and we're a little bit afraid of what's beyond that. 
But this is where we have to come back and look at what God has done, the proofs of it, the resurrection, and know that there is so much more beyond what we see right here and now. As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You almost get a sense of that, don't you? There are some folks out there who look upon us as being a waste of space and a waste of the air we breathe because we don't share their views. God forbid that we should ever have that opinion of some of them. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the love of God is greater than anything else we can experience on this earth. And as that becomes more and more of a reality in our thinking, in our believing the Word of God, that assures us of how much more He will give us, that nothing can separate us, that we are His. You know, as we, as we go about, as we may try to explain to someone about who Jesus Christ is, the birth of Christ, uh, we need to see it as the first step of the oldest promise in the Scripture. That promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The birth of Christ was exactly that. But it was only the start. It was the beginning that would culminate at the cross. And as we talk about God and, and people talk about God as being an angry God and, and, and not wanting a part of that, we need to show them that he's the God who gave his son to save us who hated him. He delivered his son up to physical death to suffer the punishment for our sin, your sin. If God is for you, I want you to know tonight how much more so shall he not give you all things as his child. And that is our comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us see your handiwork, the things you have done to redeem us, and how you have loved us even when we have not only been indifferent, but antagonistic, rebellious enemies of the cross. 
and yet you set us apart and we don't understand it. As one hymn writer says, why you saved a wretch like me? Yet, Father, let our lives be expressions of grateful wonder at your mercy. Expressions of confidence of your love, even as we face the difficulties of this life. That our lives would be as lights upon a hill, even in the midst of the most devastating storms. For we know that you have loved us and that you will not let us go. We thank you for this life that you've given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.